are listening to Turning Earth on Dublin Digital Radio. Filmmaker Bob Quinn once said that Ireland is a part of the evil empire. How does that sound to us who celebrate our traditional connection to land and who love to commemorate our revolutionary history? The revolution is not history. It hasn't been completed yet. Ireland, the semi-colony, is misunderstood. Ireland exists now as a kind of liminal space, a land in arrested transition. The declaration of a people's republic just over a hundred years ago was quickly silenced and glossed over by a period of repressive capitalist counter-revolution. The inequality and exploitation of capitalist class relations imposed by empire were integrated into a paddy-flavoured government structure. Much of our natural wealth is being extracted for the benefit of multinational companies and, of course, our homegrown capitalist class. We function as a tax haven and a small cog in the machine of international capital. But at the same time, we are part of the Western European economy and our standard of living is high compared to the majority world. Which means that people from the majority world, from war-torn regions or regions experiencing climactic pressures, see this as a potential safe haven. While our general standard of living is relatively high, wealth inequality is higher still. There's more than enough wealth and more than enough space in this island of ours for everyone who lives here and more to thrive in it. But the inequality of access to that wealth creates the conditions for tension and conflict. The emerging conflict, exemplified recently by protests in working class areas against the imposition of extremely poor quality migrant accommodation, much to the joy of the ruling elite, is a conflict between the poor and the poorer. And so, the logical result of this is intensified poverty for the poor and sharpened suffering for the poorer. Are we set on a course for proletarian auto-cannibalism? Or can we move through cultural unfamiliarity and realise we have natural allies all over the world, some of whom are now seeking refuge here? Everywhere empire touches, for as many capitalist lapdogs it creates, there are many more excluded from the good life of the big house. The people in the big house don't want everyone else to realise that we have shared interests, and we have the potential for strength and solidarity in our great number. The USA and NATO, the warhawks of the West, through the expansion of the military-industrial complex and the ever-accelerating exploitation of fossil fuels, are literally creating refugees as they drain the life force from our land. As the southern government strives to maintain cosy relationships with the EU and the USA, and to remain friendly with our former masters, the people on the street feel the sting of willful neglect and dismissal. What solution can there be to the migration crisis, or to the climate crisis, while the great western warhawks rule the day? I'm Edward Horgan. I spent 22 and a half years in the Irish Defence Forces, uh, you know, including several peacekeeping tours in the Middle East. The most, I suppose, momentous of which was 1973-74. I was uh, in the Sinai Desert in the immediate aftermath of the Yom Kippur War. So uh, I suppose I would have seen war at its worst, basically. And, um, Sinai Desert, where, whereabouts is that? Well, it belongs to Egypt, but also bordering on Israel. And uh, it was one of the major wars between Egypt and Israel that gave me uh, a view of war and the futility of it and the, the damage it, it, it does. In more recent years, I've been fairly heavily involved in observing elections with the UN, the European Union, mainly in post-conflict situations. And again, I would have experienced quite a, few, quite a bit of conflict in those situations as well. And, in southern Turkey in 2015, I think, um, and uh, we had arranged a meeting with the Kurdish party in the 
city of Aduna, which is close to the Syrian border. And as we walked into the building, I, I was with a German observer and a local young lady, and Turkish lady interpreter. As we walked into the building, there was an explosion in the room upstairs we were about to walk into. The six people we were about to meet, all of them were injured. The wall and the window was blown out onto the street. Um, we were slightly shell-shocked, you know, our hearing was buzzing for a while. Um, the government at the time claimed that it was a terrorist attack. We later met with the, some of the Kurdish party and asked them, well, do you know who actually caused it? Oh yes, they said it was a terrorist attack, but it was a terrorist attack by the deep state. In other words, by the Turkish government, uh, because uh, they wanted to create a fear that if people voted for the Kurdish party, there would be... Which party was that? Uh, the HDP, yeah, 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 uh, the biggest Kurdish party. Um, in the meantime, they did quite well in that election, but in the meantime, all its leaders are now in prison for spurious reasons. And the, my fear in Turkey is that um, the Kurdish people, like the... Turkey has by far the biggest population of Kurdish people in the Middle East. I think something like nearly 20 million Kurdish people in Turkey, as distinct from Iraq and Syria, who have a much smaller amount. My fear is that the uh, Kurdish people in Turkey might suffer the same type of abuse that the Armenian people suffered during the First World War, uh, in other words, genocide. And that is a slow-running, in my view, genocide going on against the Kurdish people in Turkey. And, and Iraq, they quite frequently go into northwestern uh, north Iraq uh, and they, they have already occupied part of Syria uh, and they are now asking the US. The US has occupied another part. The US has occupied northeastern Syria. They're asking the US to move out so that they can take all of northern Syria. And uh, Turkey is now totally undemocratic. It is a dictatorship uh, and quite a brutal dictatorship. It's, uh... War and climate change. These two phenomena cause and reinforce each other. Both are massive drivers of migration. So what's driving climate change and war? The very same political and social class that are driving homelessness, emigration and the healthcare crisis here at home. The imperialist elites who control the flow of capital across the globe, as highlighted in the previous episode, control most key aspects of so-called democratic governments, like here in Ireland, and so they set the agenda. The conditions for life are made untenable in the global south, while living conditions and social safety are systematically destroyed here at home. So if we do hit 1.5, which is most likely, we're not going to stay within the 1.5, Tom. It doesn't look likely at this stage, does it? We're not going to call the national hours. We're not going to reduce bag manure. The Titanic can't, could not be turned. It was moving too fast. It can't turn. Mm. The only issue, and it won't happen in my lifetime, it may, you will see it. Uh, Lord Ismay, the owner of the, the Titanic company, he was concerned that too many lifeboats distorts the aesthetics of the Titanic. And who's in steerage? Mother Africa. Who's in steerage? The developing and undeveloped world. So that is why I would, I, I embraced sustain the notion of sustainability. I heard Thomas Lovejoy talk live on a BBC programme in 1989 uh, offering his equation of 
biodiversity health being the measure of whether development is sustainable. He came up with that. And the Earth Summit in 92 in Rio adopted that and officially adopted it in the uh, Biodiversity Summit, the Convention on Biodiversity and Sustainable Development in 93, which gave us our Habitats Directive. The Habitats Directive, dated 92, did not come into force till 94 to accommodate the new consciousness of Rio. 194 nations signed up at Rio. For the first time ever, we realized the earth has limited resources, has limited ecological services, uh, whose functions and benefits can, can e easily be disturbed. And we're learning now. And then Lovelock has been talking about Gaia and the notion that everything in our environment is alive. And that's something else, and that's being adopted now. As the climate alters, I, I don't know, I can't say deteriorate. Well, perhaps deteriorate, yeah, okay. I mean, the climate has always been changing, I, 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 I say that. Mm. On this occasion, in this aeon, or this geological time period, it may be changing beyond the capacity for plants and animals to adapt. So there's going to be major trans, uh, the major migration, a major trans migration. I think there very likely would be an enormous loss of life. Lovelock describes a future where each country must make a choice, fortress or lifeboat. That's a very serious choice. Britain has made the choice. New Zealand, Ireland, Lovelock has named those places of the planet where life will be just about bearable mm -hmm. as we approach the three degrees, which is now most likely. You see, what killed a lot of people on the Titanic was the, um, was the panic. Mm -hmm. And I can envisage, and I have talked about this at some of my walks and talks over the years, is that we need to really organize ourselves that we maintain our grace and our decorum and our composure for the times ahead. We can only take so many Ukrainian refugees. We do what we can. There are hundreds of millions of climate refugees on the march. I'm in touch with MSF and Concern and Goal. They're on the move. How many can the rich North, the cool, rich North accommodates? This, these are really, really serious questions. James Lovelock's analysis of bioregional boundaries has been criticised by some as Malthusian, meaning an anti-human belief that overpopulation rather than overproduction and overexploitation is what's driving our multiple crises, and also that we can manage it by restricting the movement of people across borders and putting population control measures in place. Ted said that Britain has made the choice, but so in fact have the EU. This solution, border control, which is already being implemented by not just the UK but also the EU and its member states, is not going to help. Migration can't be stopped through oppressive measures. All that this achieves is more suffering and death. People have always moved and always will. There is no stopping the migration of people. The life drive is too strong. And morally, we can't stand behind any attempts to do so. If we're worried about the potential effects of ever-increasing migration, which, when you strip back the racist stereotypes, amounts to the problem of having too many people and not enough resources or services, then we need to mitigate the limiting factors here at home.
for example, housing, food production, healthcare, and at the same time fight the imperialists who are causing the migration in the first place. People wouldn't leave their homes if they weren't being robbed blind by imperialism or bombed into submission by invading armies. Lovelock's major contribution, the Gaia theory, is worth learning about. It makes sense to think about our home planet in this way, but we also need to acknowledge that this isn't new information. Indigenous peoples all over the world have known for generations that the Earth is one living thing, a huge web of interconnected organisms. That knowledge was almost stamped out by imperialist expansion. The new consciousness of Rio is not so new. It's simply the Western world coming around to knowledge that was repressed by Western imperialist powers. The EU's Chief of Foreign Policy, Joseph Borrell, recently went on a neo-colonial rant in which he claimed that Europe is a garden, the rest of the world is a jungle, and the jungle could invade the garden. Borrell, parroting age-old colonial narratives about civilization and savagery, upholds the notion of European supremacy and cultural advancement. In reality, Western Europe has one of the poorest ratios of agricultural land per person in the world, similar only to Southeast Asia. In Asia, the ratio is so low because there's such a huge number of people living there. In Europe, the number is so low because the industrial capitalist powers have covered the land in concrete. Far from being a garden, Europe is a concrete jungle and is increasingly dependent on food imports from the real gardens of the world, the African continent and the South American continent. How does Ireland relate to this system? Here, despite being an agricultural nation, we only produce about 2% of our own fruit and vegetables, and this is a direct result of the forms of agriculture set up by our former masters, the British Empire. As covered in previous episodes, this island was once covered in forests, and its people, our ancestors, lived in relative harmony with their habitat, if not always with each other. But that way of life and system of knowledge is all but lost, again due to colonialism. We have a lot of work to do, to reconnect to the land and to understand what it needs to sustain us and this will only become harder as the climate changes. Our culture will need to evolve and expand in order to reintegrate that lost indigenous knowledge and understanding. There are far-right parties and individuals actively recruiting today who view Irishness as a fixed state, an unchanging, embalmed identity, a false identity, like a costume mask, shop-bought and unalterable. A living culture, on the other hand, evolves. Thankfully, our culture is alive and well, and will likely grow and develop as it always has through the millennia of migrations this island has hosted. This is not certain unless it is protected. But what culture exactly are we protecting? How many of us agree on what our culture encompasses? What are our shared values? Who is included in our culture? What about travellers? Protestants? I was raised with a conception of Irishness that said we stand against empire and always stick up for the underdog. We fought the empire and we won. That was a romantic notion, but an enchanting one. There are competing definitions of what it means to be Irish in this moment, and it's not clear which one will enchant the greatest number of people. What can't be doubted is that migration is increasing, due to war and climate change, all driven by capitalist accumulation. What role will we play as this tragedy continues to unfold? Of course we should help as many people as we can, but chanting refugees are welcome here isn't enough, especially not when all we are welcoming them into is homelessness and an atmosphere defined by fear and hatred. The recent protests against migrant accommodation were not caused solely by the right wing. They grew organically from the anger and frustrations of some of the most marginalised people in our society. The right are making the most of that situation and are shaping the protests to suit their own ends, but they didn't start them. They were started by ordinary people. We ignore them at our peril. What these protests tell us is that people will not sit happily as the numbers of people seeking refuge here grow. 
This is an uncomfortable fact to grapple with, but we have to. And why won't some people accept continued migration? Because they already don't have access to appropriate and adequate healthcare. They are facing the constant threat of homelessness, and they know many who already are homeless. They have elders on trolleys and hospital beds. So when they say Ireland is full, it's because from their perspective, it is. There's nothing left for them. It's all been swallowed up by gated communities, luxury apartments, hotels and rampant privatisation, which for most people means restriction of public services. So if there's nothing left, how can we possibly take more people living here? Of course, we know that there is more than enough here for everybody. Brian Smith in an earlier episode talked about the horrific drop in population after the famine. The same was true then. There was more than enough resources in the country for everyone to get by, but it was held up in the estates of absentee landlords and the developing merchant class, the robber barons of empire. The middle class has grown since then, but the fundamental dynamic has stayed the same. Wealth distribution is totally imbalanced. In these conditions, it doesn't take much for humans to develop a hostility to outgroups, in this case migrants. Of course, many racist stereotypes and old colonial lies are resurfacing, aided by the propaganda of right-wing groups. But the racism didn't come first. The racism is both a symptom and a weapon. The deprivation and inequality came first. The ruling class deliberately create conflict, deliberately stoke the embers of racism and misunderstanding. It suits their strategy of continued wealth accumulation perfectly well. We need to fight to create the conditions that anyone who lives here can thrive. Housing, food, access to healthcare. These basic rights are denied or severely limited for a great many people. It's not enough to open our borders. If someone is dying from blood loss, it's not enough to tie a tourniquet and slow the bleeding. You have to stitch the wound. The real question is how do we stop people from becoming refugees in the first place? Our government show no interest in this as they bow to the warhawks and sell our land out from under our feet. Ed spoke to me about the Irish state's reckless activity in relation to neutrality and diplomatic relations. We only have uh, uh, less than six months left on the UN Security Council. Our term is up at the end of December. Uh, we have misused that two-year term totally, in fact. Uh, that's what we should have been doing um, and haven't been doing, basically. Um, I wasn't even aware Ireland was on the council. What, was, what kind of activity was going on before the invasion? Very little. They, they were more sitting on their laurels. The Department of Foreign Affairs were the lightest. Sort of been a huge achievement to be elected. Um, they got elected significantly on the basis that Ireland was a neutral country, uh, which was partly spurious because we weren't behaving neutrally. And uh, throughout the two-year term, particularly over the last six months, we definitely haven't been behaving neutrally with the situation in Ukraine. Um, there is another element as well. Uh, Separate from the whole, whole Ukrainian situation, uh, I've been reading a book there recently. A young Irish journalist called Sally Hayden did actually met in Syria in 2017. I was there with an Irish peace group and she actually came along with us. She used our group as a way of getting information in Syria. She's been exposing the abuse of refugees in Libya which is happening on an appalling scale. It's a book well worth reading. Even reading the book is traumatic to see what's been happening. Uh, every possible human rights has been abused in Libya but at the behest uh, and, and financed by the European Union uh, in order to stop the people from Africa uh, and the Middle East using the Mediterranean and using Libya to cross. 
exposed human rights abuses, women being raped on a huge scale, um, people being murdered on a huge scale. The, the European Union, including Ireland, was doing some very good work in the early years, uh, 2015, 16, 17, 17 rescuing the, the people who were drowning in the Mediterranean. They then decided to stop that and um, equipped and paid the Libyan um, Coast Guard. In fact, they set up the Libyan Coast Guard because there was no Coast Guard in Libya. Uh, they equipped with ships and then paid the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept the people in the boats, sink the boats, then pull the people out of the water and take them back into, into Libya, where they put into concentration camps, treated appallingly, human trafficking, slavery, the lot. Uh, so if, if you want a traumatic read, but well worth reading, in fact. That's uh, my fourth time we drowned by yeah. Sally Hayden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, again, Ireland is contributing something, I think almost half a million euro a year to this European Union border guard called Frontex. Um, in more recent times, they have been accused of um, actively uh, participating in um, uh, sending people back to Syria uh, and Turkey uh, who were trying to come across the eastern Mediterranean. In fact, the, the head of Frontex and some of his uh, you know, media's subordinates have actually been sacked for this. Um, so there is a lot of stuff going on in addition to the Ukraine situation. Uh, again, that Ireland should be taking a much more proactive role and Ireland. Um, I've actually written a number of letters to the papers based on partly on what Sally Hayden has written in her book, but also saying uh, what Ireland should be doing. Those conflicts have been hugely over, overshadowed by, by the Ukraine thing, all right. Plus the fact that uh, uh, I'm fully in favour of Ireland taking in its share of refugees and asylum seekers, uh, but we are being almost totally racist in what we are doing. Our governments are actually talking about speeding up the um, deportation of, of non-Ukrainian refugees to make room for the Ukrainians. I mean, this is appalling. We have been criticising Britain for um, sending migrants back to Rwanda. We're doing exactly the same ourselves, in fact, uh, on a smaller scale. But one of the solutions to the crisis that has been developed because we have taken in far too many Ukrainian refugees. Like, we don't have the capacity to look after 40,000 refugees in the middle of a housing crisis and uh, should never have taken in that many, in fact. Um, we are a small country. Britain, uh, per head of population, is only taking in a fraction of what we are taking in of uh, Ukrainians, even though they're, Britain is pouring arms into Ukraine, causing the outflow, uh, but it's refusing, like America, in taking its fair share of refugees from Ukraine. So that's part of what we're up against. Why do you think that is? I mean, other than just bare-faced racism, like why, why, why have they taken in such a volume compared to like how much we've taken in today from other countries? Yes, uh, clearly uh, we should have taken in more Syrians, in, in particular more Afghans especially. At least there is a, st a relatively stable government in Syria. Afghanistan is a basket case basically um, and uh, there's dire need for, you know, for proper aid to go to Afghanistan we should be working with the United Nations to try and rehabilitate Afghanistan. We're doing just the opposite. The US basically 
has stolen something like 8 billion euro of Afghan reserves that were held in the States um, and um, have, have probably done the same with Libya. Uh, Britain and France have, have done likewise. So there is stuff going on at that level which is in clear breach of international law and whatever. And of course, in the middle of all this, we are in the middle of uh, a huge climate change, environmental crisis, which has been totally ignored, um, or almost totally ignored. Like we're making a big issue of the farmers uh, having to cut back on their cattle, but not doing nearly enough over the last decade in particular in providing alternative energy. Nobody has been mentioning stuff like um, wave power and estuary power, which Ireland has a huge possibility there. In fact, uh, um, we are overemphasizing the wind power, not doing enough on the estuary in the way of, like the Shannon estuary could be producing a huge amount of estuary power, you know, with the tides coming in and out twice a day. Wave power is a, te a technology which doesn't depend on wind or the sun, and we're not doing nearly enough on that, and we are in the middle of a huge crisis. We're not feeling it here in Ireland because we're lucky so far where we're based geographically, but what's happening in Africa and elsewhere, you know, like I say, I've been in the deserts in Ethiopia and uh, uh, the Sinai in particular and seen the devastation there, uh, you know, even 10 years ago, um, I was in Ethiopia uh, 2008. Uh, no, no, sorry, 2010, in fact. Uh, uh, in fact, I went, uh, I was in Ukraine over the winter in 2010, and uh, one weekend the temperature went down to minus 30. Two and a half months later, I was in e Ethiopia, and the temperature went up to 50 at one occasion. Uh, and that was hot. Uh, I've heard people say that the, 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 the volume of refugee movement we're seeing now from war will be dwarfed by climate refugees in the in the near to middle future. It, it's already been dwarfed. Uh, the like the the wars in Africa are partly resource wars, both locally based and uh, internationally based resource wars, uh, and shortage of water in particular uh, is a, is a major issue. When I was in Ethiopia, I could see damage being done to the desert, in fact, because the Ethiopians, uh, with the assistance of the Chinese, as it happens, were um, building dams and building canals across the desert. And part of it, in fact, was to grow rice for China. And the locals, um, the Bedouin in particular, and you know, the nomads happened to be in the, the Afar region, which was uh, on the borders with Somalia, basically. Uh, and conflicts spilling over the borders from Somalia, um, but by uh, draining and building canals and reservoirs, they were literally sucking the um, moisture from the desert and the camels and the goats and whatever in the desert were starving because there was no grass coming on the desert at any stage. So changing the whole situation there. So yes, that's a crisis we're ignoring, and it's a, it's a huge crisis. And we're also largely ignoring it in Ireland. And that's been driven by war as well on the, on the bigger scale, because weapons manufacturers are a huge oh, yes. CO2, and that doesn't really... I know I don't see that getting talked about in any... Well, absolutely, and the damage being done by depleted uranium is huge. Bosnia, Serbia, Kosovo are significantly polluted by depleted uranium, causing birth defects in children and cancers. Um, 
the uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, uh, all have been uh, plastered with the piece of uranium bombs, basically. And uh, the first Gulf War in, uh, caused, you know, huge damage with the burning of the oil fields and whatever. So. And the, the depleted uranium, that, that's, from, that's from weaponry directly being used? Absolutely. Well, it's, uh, it's a, a byproduct of the nuclear power and nuclear weapons. It's a very convenient way, in fact, for uh, countries like the UK and the US and Russia to get rid of the, the piece of uranium, put it into bombs and then drop the bombs in countries that are no important, peoples that are no important. Like the US military are not allowed to fire the piece of uranium munitions on their own ranges back in the United States. There's a, there's a ban on uh, the piece of uranium munitions in the United States, but they can bomb all the countries they want around the world and um, poison the people there with piece of uranium at will. And Britain and, and Russia and others will be doing the same. The EU, USA and the NATO powers all fight to keep the global south, the majority world, in a subjugated state. They take their raw materials, steal oil and gas, and prevent them from integrating into the world market with parity of esteem. Despite being a finance-rich EU country, the same relations of production are at play here in Ireland. All heavy industry is owned by foreign capitalists. Outside of that, we mostly export raw materials to be processed elsewhere. The companies that want to mine here and develop monocrop forestry are mostly foreign-owned. We can and should resist them, but is that enough by itself? I just don't know. Like, I'm uh, really talking about But I, I think yeah, what you're touching on is, for me anyway, is quite um, a positive thing of the way struggles are interlinked. And, I mean, intersectional is the word that's been used the last 10 years or so, and I, I like that word, but I think we will find other words to say it a bit better. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, you know, like even, for example, okay, say, take, take, say, say in four, four or five years' time, I'm just to be sitting here thinking, oh, not only did we get a fracking ban, but we did achieve no gold mining in Leitrim. If there's still all the social deprivation, all the kind of, all the unprincipled, selfish kind of greed uh, factors that are running what we call society, which is, you know, seen by the figures of power just as an economy. If we continue like that, it's, it's puny. It has to be, it has to be total to make like to to really be of any to be of of honor you know yeah. otherwise it's it's um crowing about oh we managed it here in leitrim and then there's some other like gold gold multiple gold mines elsewhere it has to be um and and as well multiple other injustices ingrained in the whole system that uh People are that's imposed on people and causes suffering. You know, it's not. It is all linked. Yeah. You know, I think one example I would give is the uh, race in the normalised racism against travellers in Ireland and here in the northwest is just shocking, yeah. absolutely shocking. And one of the things I want to fix, and if I have twenty years left, is just to try and raise awareness about that. I think it's interesting to have that we have. We had Native Americans coming over. The suicide rates and the life expectancy rates of Native Americans on reservations is directly comparable with similar rates for Irish travellers. And they've suffered like, you know, a genocidal attack 
1963 Itinerancy Act is absolutely chilling in its wording. It actually uses the phrase final solution in relation to, says, uh, the uh, abolition of traveller traditions and culture is essential and their permanent assimilation into the settled community. The use of the language is shocking and the intention of the, the uh, extermination of an ethnicity. And luckily it hasn't quite happened, but we've got to find ways of, of bolstering up their equality, you know. And I would see that as linked to, I don't, you know, for example, if we get a ban on gold mining, hey, hooray, we've no gold mining in, in, um, in Leitrim, but we still close the doors of all the pubs and there's a traveller funeral in town. I don't want that. That's, it's of no value. It takes all the shine off it. <laughs> yeah. I'm reading uh, Abdullah Al-Shalan at the moment, the Kurdish leader, and he, uh, the book's called Democratic Confederalism. He's criticising the idea of the nation-state, basically, but he talks about the, the nation-state as a, I don't know what the word he used, but as, as a homogenous project. The, the idea is that it creates this, essentially an artificial identity based around a homogenous sort of identity, and it involves the erasure of pre-existing ethnic. He's coming at that from a Kurdish mind. You know, the Kurds are spread across four different countries. Yeah. You know, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Turkey, all of which have strong Arab nationalist projects. So it's like, if you're not an Arab or yeah, yeah. a Muslim, then you just don't exist. Yeah. And I think it's the same here, like you're saying with the travellers, if you're not a settled Irish, a settled white Irish person, then yeah. and that's what the Irish identity is. There's no room for the travellers in. Looking in relation to the Bedouin Arabs in the... In, in within the Negev desert in what's called Israel, um, the uh, all very very similar treatments except you know, they're actually just moved to their, their places are flattened. But there was in 1963 in Ballyfermot a whole traveller encampment was just completely abolished overnight, without any notice or without any. Uh, and that wasn't just this was a building. In um, in Ballyfermot, that was just uh, encircled by Dublin Corporation and just destroyed totally. So that <laughs> mindset is there; it underpins, unfortunately, even with all the PR facades that's gone on over the past twenty years. That still underpins it. Racism, anyway, and that is linked with the the sense of uh, easy entitlement that multinational. Um, the corporations have, you know, extractivist corporations have to roll in and do what they want. Yeah. It's the same mindset of, well, we need the profit, so, you know, fuck what happens. The state corporate complex, the dictatorship of capital, steamrolls over people and culture. The repressive flattening apparatus of the state inherited from empire is now applied by Irish politicians. Migrants, indigenous people, nomadic people, the working class, are all seen as inconveniences or as tools to be used and tossed aside. Because when it comes to the housing uh, campaign, we also fall into that because of mm. the crisis that we face as well with within the direct provision. Yeah, yeah. Racism and uh, challenges that we, we, we face sometimes because of now and then we, we find ourselves, you know, head on with the far right movements. Anti-migrants movements yeah, yeah. that uh, would now and then 
you know, focus on us uh, in terms of the work that we do to to promote the the work of the migrants and and international refugees and asylum seekers here in Ireland. It's something that we are used in being, you know, pushed back with regard to that. And yeah, obviously the the, the crisis that is facing the, the the migration kind of accommodation, lack of accommodation, yeah, yeah. challenges as well in terms of uh, just read today of the uh, place that was earmarked in Kildare for for to house uh, refugees from Ukraine that uh, they had a public meeting or whatever meeting they had on Sunday uh, during the day and then today this morning that place was touched. Uh, Do you mean they had a, pu a public meeting? People had a public the, meeting to because they were against the thing being used. Yeah, they, 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 yeah, they are. Yeah, they are kind of, you would say locals, or normally in these cases, not only the locals, but it will be the people that were trying to lobby the locals against, uh, they, they will put all sorts of reasons in terms of uh, all the reasons not to to allow people that are new in that in that area, could, could it be services, could be the condition of the place, mm. and, and all that, even if it's for temporal reasons. So there are people that drive a certain narrative mm. to, to influence the locals against uh, accepting people that are new in, 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 in the area. Mm. Uh, which, which is, uh, the thing is, what people, our view is that we are in, the, we are all as people who live in Ireland, as Irish people, as non-Irish people, as government, mm. all facing the issues of uh, lack of accommodation. Yeah, yeah. Homelessness is, is for everybody. And until such time that people realize that we are all in this together mm. and we need to find win-win solutions, not to turn a, a, a certain group against the other. The housing issue is not an immigration issue. It's not caused by immigrants that being here. It's caused by the lack of vision in a long term by the government to make sure that they build houses continuously yeah, yeah. that can be able to house people. Because if, if they are suffering now because of the decisions that they've made years back in terms of making sure that they utilize the land that they have and there's continuous access of, of housing, which we wouldn't be having a problem whereby there's a huge amount of, 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 of housing that are there. The Irish ruling class have kept us in this state of arrested development for just over a century. They have thoroughly embraced the ideas of colonial culture and white supremacy and they apply them empty-headedly, unable to see past the GDP figures and their own bank accounts. They are essentially continuously moulding Ireland in their own image, a sycophantic statelet, ready and willing to serve our betters. This is highlighted if you look at how the Irish government and mainstream media responded to the Russian invasion of Ukraine as compared with how the same system responded to the US invasion of Iraq. Condemnation in one case, explicit support in the other. In both cases, they undermine our neutrality by allowing the US to use Shannon Airport. 
our government wants us to row in behind one imperialist camp against another. Ukraine is caught up between, and there's been, you know, it's gone, gone back for, to, you know, NATO has expanded, whatever, 800 kilometres to the east after saying they wouldn't expand one, eight, one inch. Um, and then I think Putin obviously does have, uh, well, Russia, is, I, I would say, yeah, Russia is, a, a, is imperialist. I think it's a less powerful imperialist country than, than, the, than the United States, but still, you know, we've seen what they've done. At the beginning of the year, it was they sent troops into Kazakhstan. There was a, like, people rising up in Kazakhstan over fuel prices, and um, the CSTO was sent troops in. Um, so there was Russian troops and Belarusian troops in to back up the Kazakh state there. Um, you know, like, so that's another example, I think, of kind of Russian imperialism as well, like in a, a certain itself and being there. The, like, the question of, like, the question of Nazis in Ukraine is a like I, I, it's I, I very there's obviously a, like significant there's there's some far right groups there's obviously you know in that um, and the government has obviously worked with them uh, there's no question of that doesn't mean everybody in Ukraine is a is a fascist or that you know people haven't don't have their kind of um, and there's obviously you know people who are fighting back as well like mm. on the basis of, that their homes are under attack and you know yeah. that they should have the right to do that well just what came to mind there is what's happened in ukraine is just it's an extreme example of what's happened all over europe i think because they, they passed what here gets talked about as anti-communist laws but it was actually it was a law banning the symbols of communism and also the symbols of nazism yeah Obviously, not all the symbols because the Azov Battalion have yeah. the Wolf Sangle as their symbol. So, yeah. um, but it's that kind of. It seems like it's an attempt, first of all, to equivocate communism and fascism as though they're yeah. both equally evil and kind of the same yeah. thing. Which maybe from a Ukrainian standpoint, there's some people who might feel that way, but it's not like yeah, I can yeah. understand that as well. But it's yeah. like yeah, it's, it's just just qualitatively two very different things. Like they're not equivalent. Um, and at the same while at the same time in, integrating a very real fascist movement into the state, like the Azov are just part of the national yeah. army now. Yeah. They're quite strong. They do very they're small, but they have a very strong political influence. Um I think the Ukrainian state has the potential to become a fascist state, I don't think it is yet. But it, it that that it's it's really extreme and obvious there, but it's happening throughout Europe where far right like you're one in Italy. Maloney, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. like um Orban and all that, like yeah. there's, they're, they're, they're just completely acceptable politicians to the liberal mainstream, but they're yeah. borderline fascist. They wouldn't call themselves that, obviously, but they're far right yeah, politicians, far right, yeah. and it's like yeah. liberals and fascists are way more comfortable with each other than liberals are with communists. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. But they don't acknowledge it, and it's like yeah, well, yeah. I think like yeah, well, because ultimately, like the far right, I mean, you would say say take. Um, the brothers of Italy, like I mean, completely back the EU and and NATO. Uh, they're gonna, you know, Italy was already bad in terms of what they was doing to refugees. It probably will be worse to mm. they ramp up some of the stuff that's uh, already there. Um, they don't seem to have like a street movement. Not that that could you know that could change or whatever. Um, the party it, don't. It, yeah, I don't think they have a like a. There's not like a, but they'll definitely embolden like Trump did, and with the likes of the Proud Boys and so on, yeah, on yeah, in, yeah. in the US, they'll definitely embolden those um, in Italy. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think ultimately they'll they're 
and I think that's the challenge if you're in like uh, God knows what what you, what you do if you're in Ukraine like but but I think in Italy um you know that's the challenge for the left it would be to to expose the you know the fact that these are just standing up for these are you know standing up for the kind of corporation they're not anti-establishment whatsoever they're yeah. part of you know but I, going back to the, the the war I mean I think like um the a lot of the focus I think on the um say the this the sections of the left I think that say that we should basically support arming Ukraine it, I think I think so they 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 want to put the whole focus on Ukraine and Ukraine the right to self-defense and so on and and like yes Ukraine has a right to self-defense but you have to look at the um, but that doesn't follow. Actually, it doesn't follow that we should just arm them. You know, just because they, that, that like we should that NATO should arm them, or that we should be for NATO ar- arming them. You know, mm. um, people they they bring up like um, they they bring up the Easter Rising actually, and the co- comparison there like it's like it's not really similar. Like the mm. that you know the old game and we got guns from the the, the Germans like mm. like the Germans were not. Like fucking meeting uh, James Connolly and fucking <laughs> Park Pierce every fucking couple of months to go through fucking strategy about how mm. we were gonna take for. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, they got they got a few guns off them. Do you know what I mean? Uh, um, and the whole effect of this now is that what that like what 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 is happening is that like the Americans lost in Afghanistan. They um, you know um, and they. They, you know, they, um, they see it as their opportunity to reassert themselves as the kind of um, the leaders over Europe and over the kind of the Western world or whatever, and um, to strengthen NATO. Like there was, like you know, before this, ha- this had been before this happened, the, the kind of the West was sort of all over the place in terms of like its imper- imperial ambitions. People weren't rowing together at all, but they mm-hmm. absolutely are now. Um, and it, that has strengthened NATO, um, and that is not a good thing, you know. Mm. And that is the that like if you're here, like I think if you're here in Ireland, like the the old Karl Liebknecht thing of like the main enemy is at home, like and we obviously oppose Putin. Uh, he's a fucking thug. Like it's a rotten war of aggression. Like, um, uh, but like. You can't you can't just start start the clock there and ignore what NATO has done, you know, everywhere else, and uh, yeah. look at this war and not see that it's like it, you've got Finland and Sweden have joined NATO now, and they've yeah. they've um, handed over. They're talking about handing over Kurdish activists to Turkey to, yeah. in order to do it's it. Just, yeah. uh, you've got um, like the amount of um, it, it, like defense spending like massively increased in, in, in the EU in, gen- in, in general and then obviously here there's um, they've completely moved neutrality to like from the, they now just talk about military neutrality rather than the original concept of like active neutrality which is to try and go and like be a broker for peace and yeah. actually po- oppose war and oppose imperialism like it's just like we just won't and, and now they're talking about training Ukrainian soldiers soldiers here so like anyway yeah. sorry big long rant again but I think to to ignore all of that I think if you're on the left I think is a is a massive mistake like yeah um, oh, definitely yeah 
So back back to that argument about NATO being a defensive treaty then, or a defensive organisation, because that's how they're talking about an, an RTE Radio One. Of course. Uh, any, any, well, I've mainly just been listening to RTE on it, well, and they're talking about it as purely a defensive organisation that they don't do anything, and okay, a member state might take an action somewhere, but that's not NATO. What's the response to? Well, NATO, it was who overthrew Gaddafi and bombed Gaddafi's army. Even Sweden, in fact, before they joined NATO, which they're about to participate, they had their fighter jets doing intelligence runs uh, and picking up targets. Sweden didn't actually drop bombs, but they they almost did. Countries like Denmark dropped thousands of bombs on Libya. NATO was actively involved in Afghanistan, and Afghanistan was totally unjustified, contrary to the UN Charter. Likewise, um, Iraq. So that was NATO. NATO overthrew uh, or um, bombed Syria without the UN approval in 1999. They had no approval from the UN. So that was against international law. Uh, so that was that was the first time, in fact, that NATO uh, deliberately and knowingly uh, went outside its so-called. Def- Defensive Charter. Uh, so anybody who is arguing um, that NATO has done nothing that wasn't defensive clearly are lying, in fact, because the people who are saying this, the military correspondents, whatever, know exactly what happened in Afghanistan, in Serbia, and in Iraq, Syria, and Libya. They were all very clearly aggressive use of force by NATO, totally unjustified, and had nothing to do with defending NATO countries. So people in important places are deliberately lying when they say that NATO is a defensive organisation because they can't but know otherwise. Anybody who studied military history or whatever, uh, international law, or has to be aware of that. And the likes of Simon Coveney and, and people like that who are making such statements, uh, in my view, are knowingly lying. Something I come up against a lot is... If you talk about NATO doing this or NATO doing that, people respond that NATO is a defensive agreement essentially and will deny that NATO as an organisation take In theory, affirmative action anywhere. Well. NATO was set up as a defensive, you know, anti-Soviet um, Union with some justification, although the fact that NATO was a nuclear power, you could argue in fact that the, the, even at that stage they're purely... Uh, defensive uh, strategy um, wasn't always tenable. Um, NATO, even though it mightn't have been publicly known, um, probably always had the uh, the intention of first use of nuclear weapons. I was an observer on a NATO uh, um, British Army under Iron exercise in 1984. Uh, you know, in which at that stage there was a danger that the Soviet Union who were going bankrupt might have you know invaded western Germany and um, the briefings definitely that I attended some of them um, made it clear that the um, if the Russians um, crossed from East Germany into West Germany nuclear weapons tactical nuclear weapons would have been used almost immediately um, and the same applies right now in fact um, it probably wouldn't start off with major, uh, you know, large nuclear weapons, but it would start with the tactical ones, 
designed to take out the brigade or the battalion or whatever. Um, and that would clear the estate fairly quickly. Uh, so I, I suppose most non-military people wouldn't be aware of the nuances and, and these sorts of things, but the real danger now, in fact, is that um, uh, if Russia finds its packets to the wall, which it quite clearly could, it could start using tactical nuclear weapons pretty quickly. What do you think? What, what, what do you mean it's back against the wall? What, what kind of situation do you think? Could... I think if the um, Ukrainians start to um, use the missiles they have now been delivered from the US to attack on Russian soil, there's a bridge in particular now from Russia into um, the Crimea. Um, there have been threats by Ukraine to demolish that bridge. Uh, that could be seen as a bridge too far, basically. From, um, or if the um, there have been some attacks already on some of the Russian cities close to the Ukrainian border. If that's what extended, Russia might feel obliged to take more aggressive action, including the use of tactical nuclear weapons. And of course, there's Poland especially has been used as a major su supply base for all the weapons going in. In, in fact, we, I have actually monitored um, weapons going for all the way from Australia, um, uh, eight 155mm howlers, which are the biggest artillery guns you can get, um, were donated by the Australian military and the Australian government. They were transported in a large Ukrainian Antonov plane from Australia to Japan, across Canada, um, refueled the Shannon Airport, they'd overnight the Shannon Airport, and then were uh, delivered to um, an airport about 30 kilometers from the Ukrainian border called um, Rizzo. Um, when we queried it to the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, they said that they were told by the Ukrainian um, uh, Airline was transporting the uh, these weapons. That uh, they weren't transporting weapons; they were just transporting machine parts, which was clearly a lie. It had been fairly well established that uh, not only were there eight uh, howlers on the plane, there was also a significant amount of ammunition on the plane. So, right, so it's been actively used in this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And again, that's a clear breach of Irish neutrality. What's the solution then on the because the, yeah, the, 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 the conversation about neutrality is, it seems to me like it's been coming up a lot but it's just yeah. it's, it's, I mean it's in the, it's in the news and it's on the radio and in the papers a lot but uh, like you said there doesn't seem to be actually much of a change in support for it on the ground what do you think is the what, what's the, what do you think is the mindset of the politicians that's driving that or what do you, what do you think is behind it um, they want to be seen to be the best members of the European Union um, uh, and um, they're ignoring the wishes of the Irish people to a very large extent. They're ignoring the best interests of the Irish people because we have nothing to gain and everything to lose by being a non-neutral country and by being part of NATO. By denying the Russians, which we have done, if there was a major flare-up uh, of the war in Ukraine, Shannon Airport could be targeted. If Shannon Airport has been used um, as a forward airbase by the US, which it is, and if the US and NATO started bombing Russia, in international law, Russia is quite entitled to bomb Shannon Airport and put it out of operation. The same would have applied with Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, except that they didn't have the planes to reach Shannon Airport.
but in the international law, the Iraqi government could have bombed, could have legally bombed Shannon Airport because we, Shannon Airport was being used to bomb them. Um, and uh, that's a well-established principle of international law. In fact, it's, uh, you are entitled to prevent yourself being bombed, particularly in a totally illegal war. Um, and again, most people in Ireland probably don't realise that. that uh, and in particular, you know, talk by Irish government ministers of kicking out the um, Russian ambassador to Ireland. Again, that should never happen, even in time of war, in fact. Uh, because the, if you're ever going to make peace, you need contacts like ambassadors to um, the, talk to peace. Uh, and the sort of abuse that the Russian ambassador has been subjected to is completely unacceptable in, from a diplomatic point of view and from a common sense point of view. And it's not that I'm pro-Russian, and not that I agree in any way with the war, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I have been in Russia twice in recent times. I observed the elections in Russia in 2015, the last time Putin was elected. But strangely enough, the elections were relatively democratic. He was very popular and would have been elected even though he didn't allow important opposition people to run in the election, but at the same time. And, and you know, I also visited Russia in 2017 with a US-based peace group. And I've also observed elections in Ukraine, in fact, in 2010, again, in which a guy called Yanukovych, who was pro-Russian, was democratically elected. Um, uh, and um, uh, four years later, he was overthrown in a coup organised by the CIA, basically. What we call the Western world, led by the USA and the NATO powers, paints a picture of itself as the great guardian of freedom and democracy. The capitalist state, whether it's the neo-colony of Ireland or the imperialist state of the UK, utilise their considerable resources to produce propaganda that convinces the population, us, to see their allies as our allies, to the detriment of our own natural allies, the working people of the world. A closer study of history, beyond the scope of this particular podcast, teaches us that capitalist governments are merely the polite and reserved expression of fascism. Through imperialist expansion and colonial exploitation, they export the suffering and degradation inherent in the system to faraway lands, away from their own population. When the hold of capitalism is threatened, by revolutionary force or by its own inherent instabilities, the fascist tendency rises to save it. Fascism is colonialism turned inwards. It is capitalism's immune system in its fight response. An essential step for fascism in the defence of capital is the creation of bogeyman enemies out of people that are really our natural allies. We have a lot more in common with those people coming here to seek refuge than we do with our own government. It's clear who we need to fight back against. Do we have the courage to do it? Or do we allow empire to swallow us and sacrifice many of our own for the illusion of safety and stability? That's it for this episode. Thanks again to Glushucht and to Dublin Digital Radio. And remember, if you want to support the podcast, please subscribe on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Turning Earth. It's only €2.50 a month or a fiver a month. Not a huge amount of money, but it makes a big difference to this project. If you can't afford to subscribe, there's lots of other ways to help. You could leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. And please subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, whatever social media you use. And really, the most helpful thing you can do is recommend this to some friends. Spread the word in whatever way you can. This is independent media. It doesn't get heard unless you want it to get heard. 
Lastly, if you want to ask any questions or if you think I got something wrong, please email me at turningearthradio at gmail.com. Slongafol.